Today's sermon is entitled Embracing God's Amazing Grace. Embracing God's Amazing Grace. The end of our walkthrough of the book of Jonah, kind of like the boys just talked about, um, which was hilarious. Way to go, you guys. If you're joining us today for the first time, I want to give you a brief recap of where we've been. Because you know what I've discovered this last month as we've, we've been going through this story. It's an amazing story. And, and for myself, I believe it's so amazing because it feels a little bit like my story. And I, I think for you, you might be able to relate to it as well. It might be your story. Because God, he had a call on Jonah's life, didn't he? And he has a call on your, your life and my life as well. He's calling us. He's nudging us. He's, he's leading us. He wants us to be a part of his plan. And then what happens? Jonah, he runs from God's call. And so do we. We've all done it. We go our own way. We're pursuing our own things, chasing after our own agenda. But then Jonah, he ends up in a complete mess, right? A belly of a fish kind of mess. Well, so do we. It might not be a fish, but we all have done that before, where we run from God, turn our backs to Him, find ourselves dead-ending and messiness. Finally, Jonah calls out to God. God rescues him. That's true in our lives as well. And then last week we talked about how Jonah finally obeyed God, and there was this incredible return on his obedience. Nineveh was saved. In our lives, the same thing can happen as well. There really is so much that's similar to Jonah's story to our own lives. And as we pick up from last week, Jonah, he's just preached to the city of Nineveh, and the entire city has called out to God. Everyone in the city has responded to this message. Now, as I read that... I would think that Jonah would be having a party. I mean, excited about what God has just done. You would think he'd be saying something like, you know what? I just gave the shortest message in history and everyone said yes to God. I am awesome. Now you know my heart and what I'd be saying if everyone said yes. But no, that's not where we find Jonah. No, today we're actually going to look and see where we find Jonah, where his heart is, how he's handling this situation. But before we do, would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, I just love what we're going through uh, at LifeSpring right now, talking about this glorious mess, that God, you have a call in our lives. And, and it's so much about you and who you are, God, than it is about us. So many of us have failed to respond to your call, but yet you're the God of second chances who has called us once again into your plan for your glory. I pray that we would be a church that says yes. We would be quick to say yes to you, God, and obey your plan for our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Jonah 4, verse 1. But Jonah, this is after God has shown his compassion to Nineveh, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He was displeased. Not only displeased, but he was greatly displeased and he's angry. Why? Because God has shown grace to Nineveh. Jonah is angry with God because he has shown grace to Nineveh. As we've read through the book of Jonah, hopefully you've seen... Jonah, he is on an emotional roller coaster. I mean, he has big ups, big downs, up and down, up and down. But does God use people that are on an emotional roller coaster? You bet. You bet he does. Of course he does. And and thank the Lord that he does. Because all of us have that ability, are quite, quite capable of hopping onto that roller coaster ride, fluctuating emotionally up and down, up and down. And, and God understands this about you and me. He wired us. He, he made us. He understands our emotions. But just because he made us and understands our emotions doesn't give us the excuse to inappropriately use them. God, he understands. He knows when we're off base. He knows when emotionally we are just not in a good place. 
this is Jonah. This is where we find Jonah. He says, it says, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Oh, Jonah, he, he's, he's angry and upset because of that, <laughs> because God is good. That's what makes him angry. And this verse, it brings up something that's true of most of us. Listen up. We don't think it's a big problem when God shows us grace, when we're the recipients. But it's a little bit annoying when God shows grace to those that annoy us, isn't it? And we might get a little angry with God when he shows grace towards those that we're angry with. This is what Jonah's feeling. This is where Jonah's at. Because Jonah, in the verse that we just read, he's absolutely right. God is a gracious God. God is a compassionate God. God is the one who relents from sending calamity. This is God's heart. Jonah's right, but it makes him so angry because he does not want God to show Nineveh grace. He wants a God that's going to get him. He does. He wants a God that's going to get him. And sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it? And it leads me to the most fascinating part of the story of Jonah. He's so fresh from from receiving God's grace. I mean, he was rescued by a whale. He's vomited onto dry land. And yet Jonah fails to offer that same grace to Nineveh. I mean, it's still so fresh. He's just received God's grace. He's still got the seaweed in his hair. And yet he cannot offer grace to Nineveh. It's unbelievable. I mean, who is this guy? Well, let's keep on reading. It says, Jonah chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Now, O Lord... It gets better. He keeps on going here. He says, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Are you right to be angry or are you wrong in your focus? And we see where Jonah's focus is, right? I would rather be dead because nothing I predicted is going to happen. I mean, that's what he's thinking. At this point, he's more concerned about his reputation as a prophet, than anything else. If you ever take an Old Testament survey or any class like that about the prophets of old, you would know that when a prophet predicts something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, he gets a label, doesn't he? He's labeled a false prophet. That is not good news. That comes with some pretty serious penalties, even death. So Jonah, he has a lot of pressure to get his prophecies right, to hear from God correctly, to prophesy correctly. He's concerned about his reputation and for good reason, because he has just declared 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it looks like that's not going to happen, does it? I don't think any of us in this room have those kind of pressures on us. But we are concerned about the opinion of others. How often are you concerned about your reputation? What others think of you? For some of us, your answer is most of the time. For some of you, the opinion of others is your main concern. The Apostle Paul, he talks about this in Galatians. Galatians 1.10. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. We don't ever want to find ourselves in a place where we're just trying to please people. I've been there. You've maybe been there before. It's not a good place to be. God's opinion, pleasing Him, must always be our main concern, our top priority. 
Now, it's, it's possible to have a great reputation with those around you, with, with the people that you work with, with your friends, your classmates, those kind of people. It's possible to be considered a person of integrity, someone who's caring and kind. You can have a good reputation and still care more about God's opinion than the opinion of man. Jesus did that. As Jesus was growing up, the Bible tells us that he grew, what? In favor of God and man. But God's opinion really does need to be the driving force behind what we do. The driving force behind what we do, especially when we're having those conversations about Jesus, right? With our coworkers, our classmates, friends, family. When we're talking about Jesus, when we get into those conversations, or maybe you've never been in one of those conversations because you really care so much about the opinion of man. But if you get into those conversations, unfortunately, what happens? We get all worked up. We get so concerned about what somebody is going to think about us or say about us. And my challenge would be that can we please be more concerned about God's opinion than anybody else's? See, when you invite that friend to church and you tell him, hey, my family's going to church and we just love, love it if you came with us. Don't be afraid of their response. Don't be afraid. They say no. It's okay. Life's going to go on. You're going to be okay. And, and I'm speaking from experience. Like, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a human being. Yes, pastors are human beings. I have insecurity. I got issues. I know some of you don't like to hear that kind of stuff, but for the rest of you, I'm right there with you. I got some issues. And, and I get how hard it is to have those conversations about Jesus with another human being. It drives me nuts. But in our society, it's like the one taboo topic out there. It's easier to talk about pedicures and bikini waxing than it is to talk about faith sometimes. But you know what? Lately, Actually, it's still uncomfortable for me to talk about men's pedicures. But anyways, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> but, you know, lately I've decided to just get over that. This morning we were driving, getting our coffee, and it was a new, uh, new coffee stand. And we handed her our card and said, hey, we're pastors or at the church and we meet at 10 a.m., and guess what? She said, hey, I might come check it out. And I have my boyfriend and we have a son. And I was like, oh, we'd love to have you. It was good. You know, like <laughs> we didn't die. We didn't get spit upon. Nothing like that. She still made our coffee. It was still hot. <laughs> but, you know, I have, to be honest, I have been bolder with my faith lately than ever before. I've been inviting people to church. I've been asking waiters if they're Christians. I've been... Uh, singing worship songs at Costco, which embarrassed the person I was next to. But, you know, guess what? When, when I'm doing these things, my heart's racing. My palms are sweaty. I mean, I get nervous. But at the end of the day, I want to care more about God's opinion than anyone else's. And what is God's opinion? I'd say his opinion is that he actually loves the person that I'm talking to. He died for that person. He wants a relationship with that person. God cares about that person. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me to extend his love to that very person. A real quick story. Anybody in here ever watched Duck Dynasty? This show is hilarious. I mean, it is funny. It's a reality show about this family who makes duck calls. Uh, their father, Phil, he invented this really cool duck call back in the 60s or 70s. And now his son is trying to run the family business. It is a funny show. If you've ever watched it, you know that at the end of every show, what do they do? 
They pray. I love it. They pray around the dinner table. Regardless of what's gone on in the show, they come around the dinner table and they pray. Well, the father is actually a really strong Christian man. Let's check this out. I read an article that said Phil has actually baptized over 300 people in the river down by his property. I love that. And now they're on national TV. And I just want to show you a clip of him preaching. This isn't from the show. It's a clip he actually travels around to other churches and, and preaches. And this is a story of him witnessing to a man, not caring what the man's going to think about him, but caring enough for the man to share Jesus with him. Let's go ahead and watch it. You don't have a chance without Jesus of Galilee, unless you know something I don't. See, we all sin. We sin, we die. Number two, we go, they used to be six feet deep, now it's four and a half feet. Save money, you know. You say, I'm going into a hole in the ground. How are you going to escape that grave if there is no God and Jesus wasn't who he said he was? You tell me. Well, I'll take my chance without the Bible. You will? You don't have a chance without the Bible and divine intervention. Right? i got to go with him. Some cat called me up, ordered a duck call, and in the process of ordering the duck call, he used God's name in vain about five times. About that fifth time, GD, this and that and that. I said, hey, let me ask you something. Why do you keep cursing the only one who could save you from death? There was silence on the phone. I said, you still there? He said, hey, hoss. You got my duck call order coming? You got my duck call coming? I said, I got your duck call coming. And he goes, oh, he hangs up. I just asked him a simple question. Why are you cursing the only one I know of who can save you from death? So he hangs up the phone. Ten minutes goes by, the phone rings again. Hello, duck commander. He says, it's me again. I said, the question's still on the table. Why do you keep cursing the only one who can save you from death? Why him? He says, Mr. Robertson, I've never thought about that. I said, you never thought about your physical death? I said, you got physical death coming and you're cursing the creator of the cosmos. I said, let's see, you're over in uh, Alabama. I said, you know what you ought to do? He said, what's that? I said, you ought to load up and drive over here. It's about a 10-hour drive. You can do it. I'll tell you a story about the one you're cursing. You may change your mind about him. He said, I might do it. I said, well, you sure ought to. <laughs> one week goes by. Knock on the door. This cat steps in. He said, you know who I am? I said, I don't believe I do. He said, I was the fellow cursing God. I said, so you did come. He said, I got to know. I told him what I'm fixing to tell y'all. You know what he did? He and his buddy both. They bawled. They cried on my living room floor. I took them down the river and I baptized them in the river like they did in the book of Acts. They went on their way rejoicing, as they say. I never saw them again for 17 years. I spoke in a church over at Alabama, and some guy comes up and says, Robertson, you remember the fellow who was cursing God on the telephone? I said, I remember him. I said, I forgot him, but now that you bring him up, I remember him. He said, he's down there waiting on you. He's one of the leaders of this church now. See how it works, Oklahoma? 
Just one phone call. Somebody's cursing God. He just didn't know. Amen. I love that story. I love it. What are you known for? What are you known for? That's the fill-in on your outline. What is the reputation that you are building? I love his willingness to just talk to this man about Jesus. He, he was willing to put up his reputation to tell this man about Jesus. Because in your world, whether you like it or not, you are building a reputation. What is it? What do the people who know you think about you? And I get it's kind of a weird question, something we really haven't talked about, right, since junior high or high school. But what are you known for? What's your reputation? For some of us, our reputation, it's, it's built upon making sure we wear the right clothes, maybe driving the right car, owning the right gadgets. Maybe it's keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know. Just all that kind of stuff. But what is your reputation built upon? When it's built upon having the most toys, most friends, popularity, those kind of things, I'm here to tell you that it's going to be a tough and exhausting road for you to travel. It's like climbing a really tall, shaky ladder. The worst thing you could actually do is climb to the top. When you climb to the top of that, it's the shakiest, scariest place to be. And you're setting yourself up for a great fall, aren't you? And all the people will see your fall, and you're going to fall hard. We all have seen people in the public eye, maybe, that have had that happen to them. They built their reputation, built their fame, maybe, on the wrong things. But, you know, God's grace, it liberates us from all of that. Instead, we take our focus... That was entirely on ourselves, and instead we put it on others. That's what we do as Christians. We take the focus that was completely on ourselves, and instead we put it on the needs of co-workers, neighbors, friends, family. We stop caring about what they're going to think about us, or whether they're going to like us or not, and we simply begin to just love them. Then I promise you great things will happen. Rick Warren has a great great quote about this he says to develop friendships stop trying to be interesting and just be interested in others i want to say that again to develop friendships stop trying to be so interesting and just be interested in others in many ways facebook and twitter they're just attempts to try to look and sound more interesting than you are but rick he's telling you stop spending all this time on that instead spend your time focused on those around you pouring into others the apostle paul talks about this he says philippians 2 4 each of you should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others so again the question is what is it you are known for in our world in our headlines what are christians known for well because of some famous pastors that have found themselves in the limelight the list of answers might sound like this Christians are known for their intolerance. Christians are known for their sexual escapades and their sexual shenanigans. Christians, they're known for their financial impropriety, for our greed, for our fraud. We're known for taking advantage of those that are easily manipulated. And we're known for our chauvinism. Really proud of that. When I look at that list, I say, actually to myself, I want to be a part of a different movement. <laughs> Another movement. You know, I want to be a part of a movement that's known for good things, for hosting the coolest parties and events. I want to be known as a movement that is really known for profusely caring for their neighbors, Christian and non-Christian, where Christians are known for sponsoring millions of kids around the world, needy and vulnerable kids, 
Knowing that some of them we might be able to even bring into our family, into our home as a foster parent or through adoption. I want to be a part of a movement where we are known for seeing a need and feeling a need, including financial ones. That's the movement I want to be a part of. All fired up and all fueled by the person of Jesus Christ. And this whole thing, it reminds me of the boycott that I remember growing up as a kid. It was the boycott of Disneyland by a very large denomination. And they boycotted the happiest place on earth, which, you know, I love the happiest place on earth. And and they boycotted it, and they had their reasons, they had their justifications. Maybe some of you were a part of that. But you only get one chance to build your reputation. Why would you build it on that? It's ridiculous to me. You can build your, your reputation on one thing. If you seek to build your relationship on control, you've given up on freedom. If you've chosen to build your life on conditional acceptance, you just lost your ability to build it upon unconditional love. If you seek to build your life on what you're against, you will never, ever be known for what you are for. And that's a shame. I want to encourage you as you build your reputation, build it on one platform, one foundation. Maybe you're new today, and and if you are, welcome again to LifeSpring. Maybe you've been here for maybe a month or two, and you're probably wondering, what are we all about? What is LifeSpring about? I hope it becomes ridiculously and obviously clear to you. If I might be so bold, this is pretty bold. For those of you that have been here a little bit longer, what is our foundation? What is our one thing? Just yell it out. Jesus. Absolutely. We are succeeding. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was getting nervous. I was like, maybe I shouldn't say that. Anyways, um, a couple of months ago, I said, I want to be known as a one-trick pony. I want all of our eggs to be in one basket. And it's going to have a name. And his name is Jesus. See, Jesus transforms our lives. When, when we want to live our lives so changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, why? Why do we live this way? Well, as a church, as Lifespring, it's so that we would win people for Christ. We would build up and train people that care about and love for their community and send people out into the world to reach others for Jesus. We want to win, build, and send. We want to do these things because that's what Jesus did. That's what he taught. We are his disciples and we're supposed to be disciples who make disciples. Win people to Christ, build people up, and send them out into the world. We are a Jesus church. We are a Jesus loves you church. He is our one thing. He is our platform. Here's the deal. There are things as a church that we just get wrong, that we don't do well. And I get that. We are far from a perfect church. As far and as long as you attend LifeSpring, we will, we will have things that we're just not good at. I promise you that. But if we're going to err, I want to err on this side. I want to err on the side of Jesus, on the side of Jesus loves you. I was researching a really big and popular church on the internet. I googled, and I, it's a church up north, and I googled what they were known for. The results were awful. These are literally the results that were on Google. They were known for their bigotry, for their egos, for being hungry for people's money. They were known for their cult-like rules and church discipline. And they were known for talking about sin much more than they ever talk about forgiveness and grace. Known for pointing out people's sins much more than ever talking about forgiveness or grace. And to cut them some slack, it's tough to be a mega church. I mean, you're in the public eye. Everyone is ready to judge you. I get that. But as I look at our church and who we are, 
I mean, you can come in, hand me a novel, all the places where we're doing it wrong and not cutting it, but you cannot tell me that we do not love Jesus. You just can't, because we are wild about Jesus in the church. And my prayer is that will never change, never change. Our passion for Jesus will never change. And just real quick, a little bit more about Jesus. Here's the deal. Jesus, he's the only avenue for the grace that we are so desperate in need of. He's the only one. There's none of us that could ever earn this on our own. Jesus has provided for us and accomplished for us a way to have eternal life. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Side note, if Jesus is a little boring to you, if it seems a little simple to you, this is going to be a tough place for you to call home. I love you. I want God's best for you. But this just might not be a good fit. It's Jesus. All right. Jumping back into Jonah. I want to point out something very clearly. I want to point out where Jonah... He's failed where he's just missed it. Jonah has failed to realize that, hey, I am a recipient of God's grace. I should share it with others. God's grace has been poured out into my life. Now I'm going to share it with others. But he doesn't get that at all, does he? He misses it. So in verse 5, it says, Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know, I think he's still hoping for fire and brimstone. I, I, he doesn't get it. Here he is. He's sitting on the Assyrian plain. It's 120 degrees in the shade. And he's waiting to see God's destruction. But instead, what did he see? He sees a town in repentance. He sees people on the ground wearing sackcloth. Even their animals wearing sackcloth. Asking the Lord to show them compassion. But he misses it. He misses the fact that God had a grace for a wayward prophet, for him, and God has a grace for a wayward people, Nineveh. <laughs> he misses it. So uh, the next verse is, I, I believe, Jonah, or God, becomes a children's pastor for just a moment and presents Jonah with an object lesson, this time using a vine. Uh, chapter 4, 6 through 9, it says, Then the Lord God provided a vine. He made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. Really, Jonah? I mean, he is having a world-class pity party. Do you see it? He's angry enough to die over the vine. When I first read this as a kid, I just remember thinking, wow. I mean, it just felt so inappropriate for what was actually going on. But as, I, as I've grown up and, and I'm older now... I think we find ourselves in this kind of scenario often. I mean, we have plans, we have agendas, we have things that we want to do. And then if we hit a roadblock, we suddenly begin to freak out. We're very capable of freaking out. Has there ever been a time in your life where you definitely had a plan for how your day was going to go? You got up in the morning, ready to do what you felt you were supposed to do. And then right away, something comes in, totally wrecks you, derails you. Has that ever happened to anyone in this room? Absolutely. Well... May, may I say this? When, when our focus is inappropriately just focused on ourselves, this can happen quite often. Quite often. 
just real, real brief on a story. I was having a great day, just a couple of days ago, having a wonderful day. And then I checked my email, and I was, email can be, man, it can be a dangerous thing. But anyways, I was checking my email, and I was CC'd on an email. And this email really rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I felt it was inappropriate, off base. To be honest, it made me flat out mad. I'm a happy guy, but this email, it got under my skin. And I was flustered. I was really struggling to regain my focus. But I feel like God met me in that moment, and he said, Dan, it's just an email. And it's not even about you. (laughs) Relax. Delete the email. Get back to work. When was the last time that you just lost it over something small? Maybe it was a little conflict at work and it totally derails you. Maybe it was something that somebody said. Or maybe they weren't quite as gracious as you thought they should be. And bam, ruins everything. Are we so internally focused that our whole perspective is how things affect me? Yeah, often the answer is yes, and and it's an unhealthy way to live. We have to shift that perspective. We have to shift the perspective, and that's our next fill-in on this outline. Do you have God's perspective? Do you have God's perspective? Do you see the world as God sees the world? Now, God actually tells us that seeing the world as He sees it is actually going to be kind of difficult because He tells us that, what, His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts, that God will see more than you, God will see further than you, God will see deeper than you. God will take the thing that looked like the end of the world and he will turn it around and turn it into a fresh new start. You know that's what he did with the resurrection. There was not a disciple who would have thought, even for an instant, that the way to bring salvation was through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When he died, they thought it was over. But yet God had something else in mind, didn't he? God had the resurrection in mind. God sees things differently. And we need to shift our perspective. Try to see the world as God sees it. This is what God says in verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Please underline that last phrase. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God's essentially saying, Jonah, you don't have my perspective. Jonah, grace is my perspective. Compassion is my bottom line. I love these people. Through them, I will reveal my glory. God, he cares about the city of Nineveh. He cares about its economy. He cares about its well-being. He calls this city great. Three times. It's a reference to size, of course, but I believe God is calling these people great as well. They are image bearers of God Almighty. They are the most beautiful thing to God in all of creation. They are His creation. He loves them. And we need to have God's perspective. I'll show you in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. This is what Paul says. Listen up. He says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. All people. Circle that. All people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. And give thanks for them. Even people you don't agree with, give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone, say everyone. He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. That is God's perspective. He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. 
We need to get God's perspective. We need to see the world through the same lens that God would see the world. Through that lens of grace. That lens of grace that would color everything that we would see. It would color our interactions and our relationships. To give you an example of this, I would just say living with God's grace would look a little bit like this. A little bit like this. It's pretty cool living by God's grace. I just got to be honest. It changes what you see. Everything, your perspective is completely changed. But you are called to put on the lens of God's grace. You must wear the lens of God's grace. And as you put on these lenses, I want you to ask these questions. How now do you see people? How are you interacting with people? How are you communicating and talking with people? Is grace your perspective? Is that what we see? As Christians, we have some other lenses that we like to put on. I don't know about this, but we'll try it. Woo! Here's another kind of lens that we uh, like to put on. We go for this one a lot. These are Coke bottle glasses where everything around us seems a little, a little fuzzy, a little blurry. But right in the middle, oh, I can see you really well. I can see you super clear. Well, what happens when Christians put these kind of glasses on? One issue becomes central to them. I'm going to take them off because it's giving me a headache. One issue becomes central. When you don't have God's perspective, then you don't seek through the lens of the whole counsel of Scripture. I run across a lot of people like this, where that one issue is most important to them. It's all they talk about, all they read about, all they stew on, all they listen to. They're constantly going back to that. So maybe it's Jesus and end times. And end time, you know, Jesus and end times. End time, end times. Eschatology. Jesus and end times. Or maybe Jesus and politics. Politics. You've got to talk about politics. If Jesus was here, Jesus would be a politician. It's Jesus and something. Let me give you a formula that works. Write it down. Jesus plus nothing equals victory. Jesus plus nothing equals victory. Amen. Nothing else. So take those glasses off. They'll give you a headache. Last perspective. And we all know people like this as well. We'll see how this one goes. All right. Let's see if I don't trip on stage here. There is a little window. I can barely see. In fact, I could make a fool of myself if I walked too much. And I just just want to say this. And I'm feeling it even as I put this on. In this world, the world seems incredibly dark. The world... It's terrifying. And I believe that Christians choose to put on this helmet. And they're not the Christians they are going to light the candle in the darkness. They're going to cry and scream and shout in the darkness. And they're going to gather their loved ones to them. Circle the wagon, so to speak. Huddle up in fear. We're going to be safe. We're going to make our clothes out of the drapes, marry our cousins. We're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Just waiting for Jesus to take us away. You know, even with the election and all that's been going on, I feel like I've run across this perspective a lot. I just want to ask you, where are you? What perspective do you have? 
Do you have God's perspective in all of this? Do you have God's perspective? The God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins of the world so that anyone could come to know Him, that could be covered by His grace, could be swept up by His call. Anyone can have a relationship with God that would last for all eternity. Is that your perspective? Or are people outside of your perspective? Are there people in our community that are outside of your perspective? Nineveh was outside of Jonah's perspective. God's grace doesn't go to Nineveh. That's what he was thinking. It's not you today. I hope it's not us. I hope we never give up on anybody. That God's grace is for everyone in our community. So what is your perspective? And how do you get God's perspective? You ready for this? You get God's perspective when we become worshipers of God. Kind of like what we were doing earlier today. As we exalt Him, as we magnify Him, as we celebrate Him, we draw close to Him and we hear the Father's heart. We hear the Father's heart. And if we hear the Father's heart, we're not going to miss this. We will understand that grace is His perspective. That is who He is. God loves people. He will pursue people. He will call people. And He's going to use you to go after people. To go into your world. And to share His love and His grace with others. Because that's what's important to God. That's His perspective. Church, I want us to get to a place where we understand we have received God's grace, that we are recipients of God's grace, that it has been poured out on us. And now we are called to go. Now we are called to go. We are now called to share the grace of God, the love of God with others, to have God's perspective in the world. And as we worship God with our lives in everything that we do, as we draw near to him, as we hear the father's heart, I pray that we would see a God who is gracious and compassionate. And our purpose would be to obey a father who is gracious and compassionate and to show grace and compassion to others. I pray that for our church every day. And before we leave this morning, I want you to think about this. This is great. God, who is the only being who could legitimately hold out his reputation and demand trembling respect and awe for it. Because his reputation is impeccable. This God, who's the one who can say my reputation is flawless, he actually trusts his reputation with a bunch of yahoos like us. He does. He says, you go. You go be my ambassadors. You go be my emissaries. I'm going to entrust my reputation with you. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, we are Christ's ambassadors. And God is using us to speak to you. We urge you as though Christ himself were here pleading with you, be reconciled to God. He says, you are my ambassadors. You're the one that I sent. In a world dying for grace, you are the mouthpiece that I want to proclaim it through. Care about grace. Now you do the same and build your reputation on that. So the question, the challenge I have for all of us is who can we share this with? Who can we invite? Who can we serve? What coffee stand can we give a card to? Who can we love? Who can we pray for? Not just say we're going to pray for later, but actually when they're in need, say, I want to pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, amen. To actually do something that God has called us to do. Who's that going to be? How are you going to be part of this incredible process of being an ambassador for God. So here we are. We, we finished the book of Jonah, the end of the book. And I love the end of Jonah because it just ends. 
There's no resolution. It is totally open-ended. We don't get it. Like, what? It's over? I mean, sure, I mean, where's the sequel? Where's Jonah 2? But, but it doesn't exist. And I believe there's a reason for that. And I believe it's a simple reason. The book of Jonah isn't really about Jonah at all. The book of Jonah is a snapshot of God. God, who is creator and Lord. God, who commands the weather and the whale. God, who loves the prophet and the people. God, who loves all of us, every one of us. Israelites, Ninevites, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Baptists and Catholics. God, who loves Democrats and even loves Republicans. It's true. God, who loves us who live on the South Hill and those who live on Capitol Hill. God, who loves loves Nineveh. That's why he sent Jonah. God loves the world. That's why he sent Jesus. Through this book, we see that relentless, unconditional love of God for an imperfect people everywhere. And that's why Jesus, he says in Matthew 12, 40, he says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah who spent three days in the belly of a whale. Then to emerge proclaiming love to a wayward people. I'm going to spend three days in the belly of the earth to emerge proclaiming God's love for all. So we don't. And here's the we don't know if Jonah got it. And the book ends. But the better question is, do you? Do you get it? Do I? Do I get it? I'll close with a story. I heard a pastor recently talk about leaving his house one morning. And as he was pulling away from his driveway, his daughter just began to shout, shout and yell with urgency. She just like she had something really important that she needed to tell him before he left. He stopped Put the car in reverse, pulled back up to his little girl, rolled down the window. She said, Daddy, don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget that I love you. And church, that's God's message for you today. Don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget that I love you. He loves us. He really loves us. And it's tough to accept at times. It is. Because I know me pretty well. I do. I I don't feel lovely. I don't feel lovable. So often my actions and who I am, I just feel it's not worthy of love. I've shared several stories over the past five weeks that show in so many ways I am one messy guy. I know me. But God, he doesn't pretend that I'm lovely. He doesn't lie and call me lovable when he knows I'm not. No, check this out. Listen up. This is very important to the Christian faith. Because of Jesus Christ and because of his work on the cross, I am lovely. That's very important. It's not about you following the 10 steps to being a Christian. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. If you don't get that, I want to talk to you about about that some more, maybe another time. Understand that. Because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that's why I am lovely. Please, I hope you understand that. Because Jesus, he's the beloved son, and I am hid in Christ. I am in Jesus. And because he is the beloved son, guess what? I am beloved as well. That's the good news of the gospel. He chooses to love me. He he sees my sin, my shame, the stain, the burden, and the guilt, all of it, and he takes it away. And instead he gives me, what? His righteousness. And he does the same for you. For all of you who are in Christ, you are beloved. You are beloved, and it's not about you. 
It's not. You, I know so many of us live our lives like it's all about us. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about Christ. And you are beloved because you are hid in him. You know, it is a miraculous, glorious mess. It's true for me and it's true for all of us that are in Jesus Christ. In the midst of our journey, in the midst of God's call, as you run away and come back and do all the things that you're doing, you get in your mess, you call it to God, wherever you are on this journey, and I know we're all in different places this morning, I want you to hear these words again. Don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget, I love you. Don't forget. Don't forget, okay? Don't forget, I love you. He's calling you into his fullness. He's calling you into his grace. Extend that same kind of life, that same kind of grace into your community, into your family, into your schools, into your world. Extend it into your sphere of influence. Don't run from him. Tell him yes. Tell him yes. Experience his grace. Be ready to share it wherever you go. And be certain of this. It's going to be a glorious mess, but mostly it's just going to be glorious. Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Hmm. Holy Spirit, move in your people. Move in this place. I know you're speaking to some of us in a really big way this morning. Where when we look at our lives, we, we just are feeling the weight of our sin and the weight of our shame. And I pray that for those of us that are Christians, that have already professed you as our Lord and Savior, that we would live in the freedom that you've given us. That, that is not how we're supposed to live. We are set free. We're set free. And who's been set free is free indeed. I just pray that over, just right now, if you're feeling the guilt and condemnation, it's not for you. Be free from that. Be free from that. Christ didn't die for you so you could wallow around feeling bad about life all the time. He died for you to set you free. That you could live the abundant life. I just pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. And for the rest of you that aren't Christians this morning, here's the reality. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not going to justify your actions. I'm not going to try to justify what you've been doing. If you don't know Jesus, everything that you're doing is leading you to death. Just like Phil talked about in that video. Everything is leading to death because the wages of sin really is death. But in that scripture, there's the word but, and I love it because it lets you know there's something different going on. Sure, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With all heads bowed, I pray if you have never received this free gift of God of eternal life, and you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Raise your hand up high so I can see you. Raise it up high. All right. The rest of us, 
Let's start living like we're Christians. <laughs> and I'm not embarrassed to say that. I just feel like we're selling ourselves short. And God, show us what that means. Give us your perspective. By your Holy Spirit, even now, give us your perspective. Some of us have just been so consumed on ourselves and our own stuff that we make the whole world about us, as if everything was revolving around us. Get our eyes off of ourselves, Lord, and onto this world that you so love. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Send us into this community to be ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. We thank you, Lord. In your mighty name, we pray all of these things. Amen.